Gracious Almighty God, we praise you. And we lift up your name. We lift it on high, Lord. For you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We pray, precious God, that you would be with us. Be present with us wherever we are. A comfort and strengthen our hearts through your word. Grant us, Lord, more faith. Grant us, O Lord, to believe in you and to trust your promises and entrust ourselves to you, even as we look at your word. And we pray, precious Lord, that you would grant us understanding by your spirit and that we would see your word and see the beauty of the peace that you give to your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 26, uh, verses 3 and 4. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in Yahweh forever. For Yahweh, Yahweh is the rock eternal. We'll be taking a break, uh, as you can tell this morning, from looking at uh, the parables of Christ um, because I wanted to address uh, the issues that are facing us. Not so much the issues themselves, but our response to them. And our response, uh, as we'll look at today, is a very basic response. And when I say basic, it means a very fundamental way that we respond to any trial and any trouble that the Lord brings across our path. Because that is, is exactly what everything that we are experiencing is. It is ultimately from the hand of God. And as we will see this morning, how we respond to COVID and lockdowns and other mandates and vaccines and everything else, all the uncertainties and troubles that we're going through at the moment, how we respond to it will determine whether we honour God in the midst of everything going on. Because there is a deep anxiety that is pervading the whole of society. And as Christians, we need to be those who know how to rightly act. Those who are salt and light in this world and how we are to be a witness to those around us. And there is a lot of both trust and distrust on many fronts. And it's hard to keep track of what to trust and who to trust and who to distrust and, and, and everything else. And there's a profound lack of peace as well. And, and many people are searching for peace and security in the midst of everything going on. And this is a perfect time to show the world as Christians of who we are to trust and where we are to find peace. And that's what we're looking at in, in verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 26. Verses of encouragement to God's people in exile in Babylon, away from their land, cut off from the temple, cut off from Jerusalem. And even at the moment as we are not gathered together and as we are scattered in our homes, we can have this very same peace. And we are called to do the very same thing that these Jews are called to do. And as we'll look at these two verses, verses 3 and verses 4, I want you to see that God grants his perfect peace to those who trust in him. God, our rock, grants his perfect peace to those who trust in him. 
And so we're going to break these two verses down into two main sections. The first is the gift of the peace of God, from the first half of verse 3, the gift of the peace of God. And secondly, the call to, or the command to trust in God. But firstly, the gift of the peace of God. Let's have a look at verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. And as we see this gift of the peace of God, the first thing we see is the giver of this peace. Who gives this peace? Well, the first word in that verse is you. You. Now, Isaiah is addressing God in verse 3, and then he talks to his readers and addresses his readers in verse 4. But in verse 3, he's addressing God. He says, you keep, you will keep in perfect peace. Here in verse 3, we see the origin of this perfect peace is God himself. In the New Testament, in multiple, time, in multiple um, occasions, God is called the God of peace. Seven times in the New Testament, the God of peace. For example, in Philippians 4 verse 9, two verses after that, that famous verse everyone knows about the, 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 the peace of God which surpasses all understanding or comprehension, in verse 9... It says this, These things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It is the peace of God because it is the God of peace who gives it. And that's what we see in Isaiah, in Isaiah 26, here, verse 3. God is the author and the origin and the giver of this peace. And why is this important? Why is it important that God is the one who gives this peace? Because the world tries to seek peace from everywhere and everyone else. Because if you try and seek peace from any other source, no matter how you talk about it and, and dress it up and, 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 and speak many wonderful things about it, if it comes from any other source aside from God, it is not true peace. It is not perfect peace. Well, who else tries to give peace? The world offers many solutions. I found some of them. I, I looked them up. And I, and I want you to notice, as I, as I go through some of them, I want you to notice that all of them are kind of about finding your inner peace. And a lot of it is about what you do. And about finding it in yourself and, by, and, and about finding it in things of this world. But all of them will ultimately fail. What's the first one? Well, the first one that the world tries to seek after is it, to, to find peace is that focus your attention on the things that you can control. Focus your attention on the things that you can control. Well, the only problem is that we ultimately can't control anything. Jeremiah 10.23 says that a man's ways are not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his own steps. Or maybe in another way um, that I found, is it said this, spend time in nature except that they deny the very God who created that nature. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, Romans 1, 25. Or maybe they say, be tr just be true to yourself. Just, just make sure that whatever values and, and, uh, and, 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 and notions you have, whatever beliefs you have, just be true to yourself. The only problem is in Proverbs 14, 12, it says, there is a way that, 
that seems right to a man, but the way and end of it is death. Well, the next one is maybe just do, do some good deeds and it will give you peace. Well, the only thing is that good deeds that are done out of an unregenerate and evil heart are firstly not good, even though there is in some sense some, some as Calvin put it, civic righteousness that we can do, that we, uh, we can help a little old lady across the street. Ultimately, the Bible says that no one does good, not even one, and that any righteous deed that we do is like a filthy rag before God. And that all who rely on good works, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So I guess you can't do that to find true peace. And another method that the world uses is to meditate, to empty your mind, to just free it from everything that is troubling you. And look, that can help in some respects, maybe. Maybe to stop you from your, your mind from constantly ticking over. But Scripture says that when we meditate, we fill our minds with God's Word. And in Philippians 4, when it, when it talks about the peace that surpasses all understanding, it talks about meditating and filling our mind with what is true and honourable and excellent and deserving of praise and so on and so on. By filling our mind with God's Word. The next thing the world does is to have positive affirmations. And sometimes positive expectations, or even those affirmations, you, you say them out loud and you repeat them to yourself. The only problem is that wishful thinking doesn't make you right with God. And wishful thinking, at the end of the day, doesn't dictate reality. No matter how much I, I may want something to happen, it's not going to make reality happen. Ephesians 2.12 says that the unsaved in this life are separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So can they really have true peace? No matter how, how many positive affirmations they have. If God is against them and not for them. If Satan has power over them. If the guilt of their sin weighs down and bears witness against them that they're enslaved to their raging lust and they're condemned by the law of God and they were by the rejection of Christ, can they truly be at peace? They may fool themselves with positive thinking, but there is no true peace outside of Christ. And why do all these methods fail? Because they seek to find the answer in anyone or anything outside of God. And they try to take that peace for themselves in ways that other than what God has prescribed. And ultimately, they want to take this peace. They want, to, they want to make their own peace by the things that they do. And as we'll see in these two verses, it is not a peace that we obtain for ourselves. It is a peace that we rely on God for as we hold forth open hands to Him. Speaking of God's people, Isaiah 57, verses 18 and 19 says this. He says, I have seen His his being Israel here. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and rest restore comfort to him. Peace, peace to him as far and to him who is near, says Yahweh. And I will heal him. Then speaking of the wicked, a couple of, uh, the next verses, it says this. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace says my God, for the wicked. There are some that God gives peace to, 
and the some who will never have peace. And even though God's people had sinned, if they would be contrite and lowly in spirit, God promised that he would give them his peace. There would be no peace for the wicked. None at all. No matter how, many, how much good they tried to do, no matter how much, how much wishful thinking they tried to do, no matter how, how many positive affirmations, no matter how, they make, how much they got around in nature. And maybe, maybe they think they have peace. But I can tell you it's not a true peace. The false prophets in Jeremiah's day were trying to heal the brokenness of God's people falsely and superficially. And the Bible says that that this is what they said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They spoke false comfort to God's people. They, they, they made false promises of peace when there wasn't any peace. God alone gives peace, and no one can promise you this peace outside of the way God has promised to give you this peace. But note in verse 3 of Isaiah 26, it says this, You, speaking to God, you will keep. You will keep. And this word keep there, this word keep means to guard or to protect or to preserve his people in this peace. Because what disturbs the peace of God's people? Intrusions, invaders, other things going on in the world, suffering, troubles, other people, whatever it is, the Bible says that God will keep, God will protect and preserve his people in this peace. And what a comfort this is that ultimately our peace rests in God, in God's hands, that he will protect us, he will preserve us in this very peace that he, that he promises and I want to ask you this morning, where do you seek peace? From whom do you seek peace? Because we can all be tempted to seek it from other things. Do you seek it from trying to focus your attention on things that you can try and control and, and, and do and manage? And maybe that's particularly for people who like to micromanage everything in life. Maybe that gives you peace. Or maybe it's spending time in nature or spending time with friends or being positive or, or, or even just being true to the things that you believe. Whatever it is, do you, where do you seek peace? Do you seek the peace only God can give from other sources that are other than God? Do you actually seek God much? Do you seek God when things trouble you? Or do you just let yourself get bogged down and weighed down with all these troubles and just leave it like a festering sore to just trouble you and eat away at you before you even come to God? Do you leave it for days before you even seek His face? And you try the remedies and you try the things to help before you actually seek God. Seek your peace from God. But what is this peace that God promises? And how do we define it? Is, some, is it some airy-fairy lightheadedness? No, well, let's have a look. What is the, the nature of this gift of peace that God gives? Verse 3, it says, You will keep him, oh sorry, you will keep in perfect peace. Perfect peace. 
Well, I can tell you that the word perfect is not actually in the Hebrew text. It literally reads, you will keep in peace, peace. You will keep in shalom, shalom. Now, whenever the Jews wanted to emphasize a word, they would often repeat it. And then one of the classic examples in the Old Testament is in Isaiah 6, when, when, when the seraphim are praising God, they, they raise something to the third degree. They say, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so they wanted to emphasize that to the third degree. But they emphasized the, this uh, in other ways. They, they, when Jesus spoke to Martha, He said, Martha, Martha. When he, when, he spoke, when, he, when he was crying over Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's an emphasis there. There's an intensity there. There's an intimacy. And that's why it is translated perfect peace. Perfect peace. Because it is raised to the second degree. It is not just peace that God gives. It is peace, peace. That God gives. Now these prophets in Jeremiah 6 had cried out, as I said before, had cried out, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And they cried out the exact same thing that God promises. Shalom, shalom. They, 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 they didn't just offer peace, they offered peace, peace, right? Perfect peace. So they were offering, what, again, what God could only give. Now, you may have heard that word shalom before. And in Hebrew, it's quite a general word. And we translate it, it's usually translated in our Bibles as peace, which is a good translation. But the word shalom is, is quite a general word. It, it means a completeness or a wholeness or a soundness. It, it means well-being, often in every area of life. It means safety and it, and it means peace. And it's the most f- common form, and it was the most common form, uh, of greeting between Jews. They would say, Shalom, Aleichum, right? Peace be to you. And in response, they would say, Aleichum, Shalom, right? And to you be peace. And so it was the most common thing they would say to each other. In our Bible here, it's translated as peace. And now when you're at peace with someone, again, it's the idea that you're not divided from them or at odds with them or enemies with them. And when you're healthy, your body is functioning completely. There isn't a part of it which is dysfunctional. There is a wholeness, a completeness, a, a, a well-being and a peace to there. And shalom is the idea that every area of your life was under the favor of God and that he was working for your good. And the result of that is that it gives you a settled contentment and satisfaction that you know that God is for you and working for your good. And all of that is encapsulated in that word shalom. That even if everything around you appears, at least from the outside, to be out of whack, God is for you. He promises you shalom. He works for our good and our well-being in us and around us. And it touches every facet of our lives. And the Lord will keep us, He will preserve us in this peace. And then we can have a settled state of heart and mind because we know that God is working for us and for our good. Why should we fear? 
Why should we be anxious when we have this, this peace, peace offered to us on a platter ready for us? God will keep us in perfect peace no matter what happens to us. In number six, we have the greatest blessing given to the Jews. It's called the Aaronic Blessing from Aaron. And I want you to notice the connection between shalom at the end of these verses, in, in number six, and the blessing of God and the light of his face and his loving kindness that shines on his people. Have a listen, number six. It says this, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you peace or shalom. And so this is what God promises his people. Perfect peace. John Gill says this. He says peace. The word peace is doubled to denote the certainty of it, the enjoyment of it, the constancy and continuance of it, and as expressive of all sorts of peace which God grants to his people and keeps of them as peace with God and peace with men. Peace outward and peace inward. Peace here and peace hereafter. Close quote. What makes this peace from God perfect? What makes it so special? Well, first, it is certain peace. Certain peace. God will always deliver on his promise. In verse 12 of Isaiah 26 of this chapter, it says, Yahweh, you will, you will establish peace for us since you have also performed for us all our works. Since we know God's track record for us and through us, we know that he is faithful and that he will give us peace. God keeps all of his promises. Not one of the good, not one of the good promises that he has promised to his people will fall to the ground and fail to come to pass. This peace is a certain peace. But it's also a joy-filled peace. It is a blessed peace that is to be enjoyed. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, in the fruit of the Spirit, what is placed next to peace? Joy. Joy, love, joy, Peace. And so this peace and joy go hand in hand. Knowing that God is for you and working for your good. Why also is it a perfect peace? Because it's a perfect peace that will last forever and ever and ever. Ezekiel 37 verse 26 says this. It's talking about the, the new covenant that we have in Christ. It says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. In Isaiah 9, it talks about, about Christ and his kingdom. And it says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And it says that he, his throne will endure forever and ever and ever. And if you're in the new covenant, if you're in the kingdom of Christ, if you're a believer, your peace will never end. It will never end. Well, this peace is perfect because it's also comprehensive. It encompasses... Encompasses all of us at all times. As 2 Thessalonians 3 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself grant you peace at all times and in all circumstances. The Lord be with you all. 
And because this peace, this perfect peace, lastly, it leads to quietness and rest. Isaiah 32 says, And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Then my people will live in peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. This is speaking ultimately of all those who receive peace under the Messiah's reign. That even in the midst of everything raging around us, we can have secure dwellings, we can have peaceful habitations. As the Bible says, a peace where we can be led beside still waters, a peace where he leads us in green pastures, that our soul, as it says in the Psalms, our soul can return to its rest because the Lord has dealt bountifully with us. So this peace brings rest. Isn't it a peace that surpasses all understanding? Isn't it true in Philippians 4, it's a peace that, that surpasses all knowledge and comprehension? A perfect peace that we, can, we can't even understand fully, it transcends what we can even think about it. What a perfect peace we have from our God. What a perfect peace we have offered to us that we cannot even, we cannot even mind the depths of. And surely you have felt this peace again and again as a believer as you have come to God and laid everything at His feet. Surely you have felt this peace, this perfect peace. If you have never felt this peace, then it means you have never truly come to God. But it's a a peace that He promises His people. And it's a peace for all who are in Christ. Do you know this experience of peace? Will you cry out to God in a trial or trouble? And a peace that you cannot explain fills your heart and mind. And even though at one, just before that you were anxious and you were troubled, it's, like a, sometimes, it's sometimes like, a, like, a, like a, a switch has been flicked and suddenly this, this peace pervades your very soul. And, and suddenly what was troubling you before doesn't trouble you at all. God offers this peace to you. This contentment and this joy and this, this state of settled satisfaction in God. Only believers can have this. And I ask you this morning, do you have this perfect peace? peace that only can, a, God, a peace that only God can give. A peace that knows that God is with certainty working for you and for your good. A peace that will never end. A peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that surrounds you in all things. And a peace that leads you away from anxiety and to rest in God, in Christ. Do you know this peace? Well, next we're going to have a look at the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 as well. The call, the call to trust in God. Not even a call, a command to trust in God in verse 4. Because this deals with the recipient of this peace. The recipient of this peace. This is the one who receives this blessed peace. And it's simply this, the one who trusts in God. Have a look with me at verse 3 and 4. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in Yahweh forever for Yahweh, Yahweh is the rock eternal. 
Now, we're going to be looking at what, this, what it means to trust in God from this passage. And we see the first thing there, that faith, true faith and trust in God is a reliant faith. Because the recipient of God's peace in the second half of verse 3 is him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in God. That word steadfast there means to lean upon or rest on, to support yourself physically with someone or something. And to get a picture of this, in in Judges 16, at the end of Judges 16, when we've got the the, the account of Samson, verses 28 and 29, this very same word is used there of Samson in the very last moments of his life. It says this, Then Samson called to Yahweh and said, Oh, Lord Yahweh, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Now as Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. That word there, braced himself against those two pillars. Right, His eyes have been gouged out. He is now weak, physically not just like a normal human being, but the idea it seems to convey in this text that he's, he's even weaker than, than normal. A sign that his strength had completely gone. And so as he rested himself completely on these two pillars, he braced himself. He rested everything he had on these two pillars. They were taking, he entrusted himself to them to take his weight and to hold him up. And those pillars... As we saw, as, as we've seen, I'm sure, in that chapter in Judges 16, those pillars upon which the whole of that place rested as well, those pillars were supporting the whole place. Those pillars supported Samson as well. And that word there, steadfast, well, that word there means to lean upon and support. And in the same way, true faith leans on God. It relies on God and takes God at his word. It is essential in the Christian life for peace. And it's the exact same kind of faith when someone comes to Christ for the very first time. And as, as I just said, is the same faith every single moment of their Christian life. It is the same faith that we're going to have for all eternity. It is a faith which depends completely and leans on God completely. Faith is sometimes talked about simply, merely as an intellectual belief in truths. Whether historical truths about Christ or doctrinal truths about Christ's saving work, but that's only half the picture. It's necessary, but it's only half the picture. Now, this is really important to understand. True faith involves two things. First, it is a conviction, Right, which involves both a knowledge and a, and a belief that something's true, a conviction of the truth of God's word or, or the truth of the gospel. So a conviction, not only a knowledge, but an, a belief that it's true, but a, then a commitment or a reliance upon the God of that word. And so when we're speaking to people about true faith, when, we, when we're talking to someone about coming to Christ, they must both have a conviction of the truths of the gospel and a commitment to the Christ of the gospel. Those, both those things are necessary. Both those two things are necessary. The first must be there for the second to happen. The conviction must be there. 
for you cannot rely on something you do not know. But if it is just the first, then it is not true faith. It is not enough to save. There must be both a conviction and then a commitment or an entrustment or a reliance on Christ, on God. Faith is not just believing that Christ died for sinners and was raised from the dead. That's just knowledge about truth. And even the demons believe that and they shudder. Faith is not even believing that Christ died for you. And that assurance is only for believers to know after they're saved. Again, it's just knowledge. But faith is conviction married together with commitment or entrustment or reliance upon God. Because when a sinner is convicted about the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was raised again from the dead, and that he is the only hope for sinners, and is when they understand that they are sinners in need of that very hope of salvation, then, then they entrust themselves to Christ. Then they rely upon Christ and run to him in faith, in complete dependence upon him. That is true faith. And this reliant faith casts itself completely on God. And that's what it means to have your mind steadfast on God. It means to cast your faith. It means to cast your entire self on God and leave everything in his hands. Because next we see the object of that faith. The object of that faith, as we've just been talking about, it says, trust in Yahweh forever. For Yah, Yahweh is the rock eternal. Faith indeed must be reliant, but it must be reliant on something or someone which is actually trustworthy. If there's any, going to be any hope of security and safety. I want you to imagine that you're, in a, you're, 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 you're kind of floundering in a river, right? a deep, mighty, strong river. And now this river is carrying you, right? There's nothing you can do about it. You've been carried along inexorably. You've been carried along helplessly by a strong current and a pool that you cannot swim out of. There is no hope for you in and of yourself. And you hear the pounding of the water. You feel the, feel the current pulling you along. And as you, you hear a greater pounding coming along, you know that that water drops off the edge and there is a waterfall that is coming. And as you're being carried along by this water, you hear the, the pounding roar of the water getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And in that moment, you have no hope in and of yourself. You are carried helplessly along. Let's say we added two options in there, two options of potential salvation. One is a big log, and the other is a strong rope that is anchored to a rock on the bank of the river. Which would you take? That big log looks really big. It, 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 you know, it, it looks like it's, it's floating, right? It, it looks like it's, it's not sinking under. Maybe you could try that log. The only problem is that log is being carried along by the water, just like you. And that is the false hopes of this world in order to try and find peace. They might look good, but they're just going to carry you over that waterfall and you'll be dashed in the rocks below. But no, that rope, 
That rope is secured to something that is not moving with the water. It is something that is immovable. A rock that isn't moving. It doesn't matter how strongly you cling to that log. It doesn't matter how strongly you cling to that rope. If you cling to that log strongly, it doesn't matter. You're still going to die. And if you cling to that rope, it is not you that saves yourself. It is the rock that is anchored that saves you. And that very same thing applies with faith. Indeed, God grants us that faith to even cling hold to that rope. Hold to that rope. This clinging, this desperate reliance upon which God has given us for salvation. That very faith he gives us is from himself as we we cling to that rope which is attached to that rock. Indeed, that reliance that God gives us, that faith that God gives us is a reliance on himself. The object of our faith is God himself. As I've said even already in the sermon. But have a look again at verse 4. Who does it describe God as? It says, trust in Yahweh forever. That word Yahweh is God's covenant name. It is his personal name, which declares his aseity. It's not Adonai, which is Lord. It's Yahweh. It's his personal name. It declares his aseity, his self-existence. His self-existence. God is uncreated and eternal. And because he's uncreated and he's self-existent, that means he is therefore independent of everyone else. He's dependent on no one and nothing. Rather, all things depend on him for existence. So when we are given the charge to trust in God, he is Yahweh, the self-existent one from whom all things come. And we are called to consciously depend upon the God upon whom we depend. We are naturally dependent on God anyway, and we are called to consciously depend upon God that we, on the, upon the God that we naturally that we are naturally dependent on anyway. It's like when we submit to Christ as Lord. We don't make Jesus Lord of our lives. He is Lord of everyone's lives, no matter who it is. He's Lord already. But the call is to recognize that and to cast themselves upon the one who is Lord of their lives and to submit to him as Lord. Every single breath that you have is from God, the self-existent one. Every single beat of your heart, every single firing of a neuron, every replication of yourselves, God gives it all to you. Your strength to do anything, your faith. And at the end of the day, you were called to cast yourselves on the one who gives you everything. The very faith by which you cast upon him. You were called to exercise it and cast yourself and rely upon him. Who's holding you up anyway. And then he gives us this very peace. What a God we have. What a God we have. And I don't know if you noticed, that word Yahweh is repeated three times. It literally reads, trust in Yahweh forever. And then we have a shortened version of Yahweh and then full version again. For Yah, Yahweh is the rock eternal. If peace was emphasized twice, Yahweh is emphasized three times. Even more to the third degree to emphasize even more the God who gives that peace. 
In Isaiah 12, verse 2, we see a similar thing. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yahweh is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. What else do we see? God is called our rock. Our rock. And this reinforces God's strength and His security, even as was read out from Psalm 18 before. God is our rock and our fortress, and our deliverer, our God, our rock, in whom we take refuge, right? He's a rock which never fails. The great hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, goes, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. God is a rock in Christ that never fails us. He does not erode. He does not shift. He does not break. He is immovable, unbreakable, and he is steadfast. He is not like sinking sand. And that's why we see the word there, eternal or everlasting, because he's a sure foundation forever. And that's why it says in verse 4, trust in him forever, because he's a, he's a rock forever. He's not going to go away. He's eternal and he cannot change. And so the last thing we see about faith is that faith endures. True faith endures. It says trust in Yahweh forever. It is not the false faith which springs up for a short while and then disappears the next day. It is not the faith which, which, because it has no root. It is not a false faith which is choked out by this world. No, it's a faith which keeps trusting God forever. That doesn't mean that we'll always trust God at every single moment. We wish that we did. And what peace that would give us. We wish that we did. But it's a peace that will endure. Hebrews 6, verse 11 and 12 says, the writer says, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Our faith is an enduring faith. It is for, if it is from God, it's a faith which will endure. Because our God, our rock, he will endure forever and ever and ever. And so I call you this morning, from God's word, keep trusting God. Keep trusting him. Entrust yourself, as it says of Christ, entrust yourself to him who judges justly if you're a believer do you have you should have this faith a trusting faith an enduring faith a faith that is fixed on a self-existent god who is an everlasting rock and if you're a believer and you are giving into the anxiety and worry over vaccines and the pandemics or even both right then don't do it at the end of the day, we, we must do what we believe to be the best course of action, to do what is necessary and what honors God, but do not let that translate into being scared of anything or anyone, such that you lose sight of God. And when you are tempted to be anxious, do not be tempted to not go to God. 
Right now, when there is a contagious virus, strict lockdowns, uncomfortable mask mandates, limited interactions with family and friends, increased mental health problems and suicides, increased alcoholism, economic uncertainty, vaccine uncertainties, whatever it is, trust in God. It's that simple. If you are doubting God, fearful of everything more than you fear God, or you've placed even your ultimate trust in vaccines or something else, or a healthy immune system to save you ultimately, then you are sinning and you need to repent of it to God. If you are seeking a false saviour, it's not to say that things can't help, but if you are seeking ultimate safety in anything other than Christ, you need to repent of that. And you need to cast yourself upon God, the only one who is truly trustworthy. He holds all things in his hands. He holds our very lives in his hands. He holds our very health in his hands. If you're forced to take a vaccine and you take it and you're uncertain about the vaccine, entrust himself into your hands. Whatever it is, entrust yourself into his hands. Our lives and our health is in his sovereign control. Have you lost God's perfect peace and are filled with countless anxieties? Then renew your understanding. And that's what faith is. Knowledge and conviction that things are true and entrusting yourself to God. Renew your understanding of who God is and then entrust yourself into his loving hands. Entrust him forever. But if you have never cast yourself upon God, then he calls you to. And he calls you to trust him for something even greater than, a, than, for protection for something even greater than a virus. Because the plague of plagues is not coronavirus. It's not the bubonic plague. It's not the black plague. Whatever it is, the deadliest plague is Sin. And the only, there is only one doctor who can save the good physician, and that is Christ. There's only one balm that can heal the sore of sin, and that is Christ. He's the only one who can heal sinners. There's only one rock or refuge to cling to, and that is Christ. The Bible calls him the rock in 1 Corinthians 10. He is the rock to which we must cling in Romans 5, 1, which is read out before for us, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who can give us peace with God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, before you can even think about having subjective peace or, or any state of, 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 of contentment or, 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 or joy or whatever it is, you must first settle an objective peace with God. And that comes ultimately only through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one Savior. There's only one rock and one refuge. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Christ is the one who reconciles us to God. He is the only one who brings peace with God. And when you come to God through Christ... You will receive a subjective peace knowing that you have objective peace with God, with the, with, this, with the sovereign God of the universe. And he will flood your heart and mind with a peace, again, that surpasses all understanding. He will forgive you and cleanse you and he will never 
let you go for all eternity and raise you up on that last day. Trust in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are our everlasting rock who never lets us down, who is immovable, unshakable, and who cannot be eroded. You are our everlasting rock. You are Yahweh, the self-existent creator God who is independent of all things and on whom all things depend. We pray, precious God, that we would realize how dependent we are on you and that we would cast ourselves upon you in faith. Oh, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the rock of ages. He is the one who hides us from your wrath. He is the one who, to whom we may cling as the only hope of our salvation. And we pray, precious God, that we would learn to cling to him all the more closely. And, Lord, we do pray for those who, who are unsaved, who are listening to this or watching this. Lord, we do pray that you would grant them faith, a faith which is a reliant faith, a true faith which, which casts itself upon you and a faith which endures to the very end and for all eternity because it is a faith that you give. That, that you give. Oh, precious God, we pray that you would grant them repentance. We pray that, Lord, you would grant them faith, that indeed they may lay hold of Christ, knowing he's the only saviour of sinners and that they are a great sinner, but Christ is an even greater saviour, that they may entrust themselves to him who will never let them down. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.